Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In this new series, I am focusing on portraits of women who have an outstanding career in games. How did they get into games? How did they reach their high position and career? What have been their personal and career choices to get to their level, and why? I want to bring more light to the wide range of career paths available for women in leadership positions in the industry, and to inspire you to dream big for your life and career too. Let's begin. Today, I am very excited to have Kegan with me. So a little more about Kegan. So Kegan Clark is the current director of product on Diablo 4 at Blizzard Entertainment and former head of business intelligence on League of Legends franchise at Riot Games. And she has had a passion for games, especially RPGs, since she could pick up a controller. So hi, Kegan. Very pleased to have you. Hi, hi. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm the one thanking you to be here today. So let's begin the day. And my first question with what's exciting for you these days? What are you working on professionally or personally that you'd like to share? Well, Diablo 4 is super exciting. You know, there are some times that I reflect on getting to be the director of product for this game and It's a game that I remember playing as a little kid, and I'm just so humbled, it's hard to believe. So all of my energy and focus is going into Diablo 4, and then also my two kids, because I have a new baby, so... Oh, congratulations. <laughs> so yeah, busy personally and also professionally. Very different things, though. Yeah. So as a follow-up question, it's exciting, very exciting on Diablo. It's a very, very big franchise. And I'm curious here, have you been like a very deep player on Diablo all the past years? Like you mentioned, you were playing you know, more as you were a kid, but have you followed as well the evolution of the franchise before you joined? Was that even a factor? No, I mean, it was definitely the main reason I was drawn to this role was... As a really little kid, I played Diablo 1, you know, on my brother's computer, and I played some Diablo 2. Obviously, this is like 20 years ago at this point, so it's hard for me to remember those games. D3 is not exactly my vibe, but Diablo 4 is really the spiritual successor to Diablo 1 and Diablo 2. So one of the main draws for me was getting to work on a franchise that kind of shaped my early experiences as a kid. All right, so I do have some questions then as follow-up about the franchise. I could say as well, I play, of course, some mid-core games on console, but I haven't played so much of Diablo. So how would you describe Diablo? What makes Diablo Diablo as a franchise characteristic? And second part of the question, how would you describe the audience playing this game? Why do they like Diablo? How much can you tell and or do you know about the audience? I'm very curious about that. Yeah, Diablo kind of has a few core pillars. One is the dark, grounded, gothic art style. That is core to Diablo. It's inseparable from the IP. It's a dark world. It's not a high fantasy world. It's a world full of tragedy and demons and angels. And actually the lore of Diablo is very beautiful. The other pillar is loot grinding. It's a loot grinder. It's about sort of killing monsters and rolling that dice. And then sometimes a super shiny thing pops out of the monster you just killed. And there's just that rush of excitement as you like figure out what it is, how good it is, how it relates to your build. And the third pillar 
really is those builds. There's so many different ways to build your character and play your class and optimize your class with the combination of the talents and then also the abilities that the armors grant to your builds. I believe and there are very the core fans of a franchise with a core pillars. That's really uh, helpful actually to understand. I think it's really a challenge to crystallize the pillars of a franchise and it makes a lot of sense to me by hearing it. <laughs> and so I wonder as well, there's probably the core fans who followed the franchise over the past years, but there are probably as well a newer audience maybe who evolves as well. So who's playing Diablo? Diablo 4 is really focused on Diablo 1, Diablo 2 players, folks who loved those games deeply. It's a little bit of an older audience. We're not targeting teenagers or young kids or anything like that. And it's not really as much of a like mass market audience. It's not meant to be the biggest game ever, right? And reach everybody the way that, you know, a Fortnite might be trying to do. It's meant to deeply serve that core player base that loves those three sort of core pillars of Diablo. Mm -hmm. It made me reflect as well on God of War that I played a few years ago. <laughs> Actually, so if you think of Diablo 1 and 2, well, we were in teenager age playing those games and like now Diablo 4, like 20 years after. And I wonder how much the design of a game or even the approach of the game, the theme is evolving with a player age, right? We don't play the same way as we were kids. Playing behavior has evolved because as an adult, you know, your life is changing. So I wonder how much as well you think about those questions when you think about the audience. The target audience for Diablo 4 is older. But one thing that is different about a game like Diablo than a competitive online game, like an esports titan game like CSGO or League of Legends, is that you can really go at your own pace. There isn't necessarily that intense competitive pressure for most players. It's kind of a solo experience, which fits well with an age group that has a lot of responsibilities and, and you know, often has like kids and things like mm -hmm. jobs. And But in other respects, learning from the evolution of ARPGs as a genre and games in general, how to make the game feel better and be more convenient to players and remove the painful grindy parts and add more of the fun parts. I mean, the franchise is always improving with each iteration in those respects as well. Makes a lot of sense. So with your role as director of product, I'm curious to hear more about, you know, what is the role about as well, how you are structured? Yeah, absolutely. The director of product and the product management discipline is pretty new at Blizzard. And the idea is that the role kind of stewards the overall business health of the game. So ultimately, I'll be accountable to a revenue target. But getting to that revenue target involves balancing box price, ongoing engagement, ongoing monetization, as well as like the team's relationship with the community and doing that in the way that is consistent with Blizzard's values, which are very design focused, very player focused. So my current focus is really helping the team transform a development organization, which has always historically operated in a mode of shipping a box product and moving on from it to a mode of operation in which it's more like a modern live service. So listening to players, iterating on that feedback, continuously delivering content and improvements to make the game a living game. So games like Diablo 3 have 
a community of players who put thousands of hours into the game. They keep these games alive for years and Blizzard wants to recognize that and deliver that, you know, living game experience that these players want in a way that we haven't really done in the franchise in the past. Coming from traditional free-to-play, especially in mobile, this is the main model we have at the moment. So I understand then this correctly. So for the case of Diablo 4, it's still like a premium price to begin with, but then you keep playing the game as there are live updates, downloadable content, and for years, as long as you produce content. Is that right? That is correct. What are the different tools you have then to be connected with the players? You always check the pawns, understand what they want, what they like, what's working. There's actually three kind of main pillars of this. One is that we do quantitative and qualitative surveys. So we have the wonderful insights department that is constantly asking players their thoughts and opinions and feelings and intentions and things like that. The design leadership loves to get that kind of feedback. The other one is that they stay connected to the community through social media. So they're reading those threads on Reddit trying to understand how players are talking about the game in different social media spaces. And then the third one is really talking to community leaders, influencers, and understanding their perspective, which is pretty deep, both as players and as leaders in the community, on like how players are feeling about things, how they're responding to things, what players want. In mobile, we are doing this as well. But when I look at the history of console, we are probably a bit behind. Some companies do, some don't. And I think we are catching up with the practices like you are describing, being very close to the community and understanding really deeply how the players are interacting with the game and not only the motivations, but, you know, how feedback on updates, content and so on, like having this tight loop of communication. It's so valuable. Like, One thing that always surprises me is how new this mode of operating is to a lot of game companies because, you know, coming from Riot, Riot was really pretty obsessed with getting player feedback and getting the player voice into the dev cycle. So, Do you have a department of player research or expert on that field to support you, you know, like to analyze? and? Yeah, we have three different kinds of insights groups currently. There's kind of user research, which is a lot more like high fidelity, but small scale. So you get a lot more information from talking directly to players face-to-face, interviewing them more in-depth on a topic. And then there's quantitative surveys, and that's our survey research group that does quantitative surveys. They are doing a lot of market research on large external player populations. And then we have our global insights group, which does a lot of in-game telemetry analysis, tells us how players are behaving in-game. And the combination of those different types of insights groups gives us a really full picture of how players are behaving, what their motivations are. This is awesome. I really love that part because this is also understanding, you know, like the human side of a player, right? And not just consumers or numbers on the spreadsheet. Yeah, so critical. And so you mentioned as well that this whole function of product management was uh, new. How is this new? And why now we have product management departments on AAA games? You know, the reality is that the $60 box price has not really changed in 30 years, but the cost of developing games has gone up astronomically in that time. And so I think a lot of product managers have been 
brought in to help figure out how to modernize the business model for these AAA games so that they are sustainable businesses. A game like Diablo doesn't just support the creation of Diablo content. It's going to end up supporting all kinds of horizon bets in R&D and the studio overhead itself. So it's really about helping to adapt the business model of these AAA games to meet the current needs of these studios. Very key question that comes to my mind as I think of product management, but this is a eternal tension that will exist is with uh, design. And in this case here, I believe like more creative direction. So I wonder how those two uh, departments work. What is the level of ownership or decision-making that you have on product and uh, more on the creative side? How are you organized? Yeah, my relationship is one with the dev team where we really have to drive alignment. You know, there isn't a clear set of decisions that one party is going to own. It's we have to like come to an alignment using informed arguments that everybody understands. We have to, you know, hear everybody's perspectives and voices and then do ultimately what is best for players in the product and balance those things. That's very interesting. And maybe for mobile, we could look at it also with this lens where, yeah, focusing on the player experience first. So it's kind of a long-term focus, right? Mm -hmm. Because it will drive revenues eventually. But I have to admit as well that it is the product management directions are very strong in mobile because we have a lot of data and insights and sometimes a little too much where it may (laughs) overrule creative design decisions that are not proven yet. So it's really interesting to see this in the DNA of, well, in the case of Diablo, but I see that as well for AAA games where it's very pushed really far for player experience, quality of production that makes the difference with mobile. So it's very interesting to see this angle. The relationship with players on a AAA live service like League of Legends or like Diablo 4 hopes to be is a really, really long relationship. I mean, a lot of the players that are going to come into Diablo 4 have had a relationship with the franchise for, like you said, 20 years. When you have relationships that are that long with a target audience, it's important not to burn bridges and to make sure that they are getting the best possible experience that's going to have that kind of longevity and that kind of staying power. In a lot of mobile contexts, the experiences are more bite-sized. And so you want to optimize for the revenue that you can drive from a shorter lifespan. Whereas in a game like Diablo, the lifespan is sort of thought about more in decades. Yeah, that's amazing. That's crazy. I wish I could think of a mobile game one day in terms of decade. But I think there are things to learn as well from what you are sharing today on mobile. Because as I said, we are catching up on some practices still with console. Although mobile is a completely different experience, of course, that is complementary to console in the player experience and in the context of how they play. Question about your department as a product management. Do you have a team and how is this team structure? What are the roles that are supporting you and your work? Yes, we have a team. It kind of splits into two major nodes. There's a kind of a monetization side and there's an engagement side. There's someone who's accountable for 
helping to make sure that players engage with the game. So like how easy it is for players to onboard to the game, to bring new players in, in addition to how well does the content in the live service retain players and revive them, you know, season over season. And then on the other side, there's the monetization lead who's accountable for figuring out how to capture revenue from that engagement that sustains the team that builds the live service. What would you say is the biggest challenge for what you have to do on product management, whether on Diablo or, you know, on a AAA games? Well, you know, the team's objective is to deliver the best game experience they can in a sustainable way. And that requires taste. And it is ambiguous. Like, you know, mm -hmm. in mobile and even, you know, on League back in the day, we had so much information, so much data, so many KPIs that we're like monitoring all the time, right? But the types of decisions that we're making on Diablo 4 have much bigger implications. They're not really about minor optimizations to a product that is like stable and launched. They're about how you gate and distribute different kinds of content at a really fundamental level. And there's no clear template for what the best version of that looks like in a AAA PC game where, you know, I think that's actually still evolving because you have to balance multiple things. You're not just optimizing for revenue. You have to optimize for what is the best possible game experience that I can make that brings in enough revenue to sustain the studio, sustain the R&D bets, sustain Diablo, that also maintains this like long-term relationship that is positive with players. And so there's a lot of ambiguity and that ambiguity can be scary and uncomfortable at times. <laughs> It's always the risk you take when you have an assumption and then you test it and you only know once you have tested it, right? For sure, yeah. It's only going to go live one time. Can you do A-B tests actually on AAA games? Because I'm thinking about it and there's a community, so if people notice they have different variants, is this even a practice? or There are certainly some things that get A-B tested. I would say that folks don't want to necessarily A-B test where one group of players is going to get a dramatically better or worse experience than another group. So we try to figure out questions of that nature without A-B testing. Yeah, yeah. I can see yeah, it's more sensitive uh, for sure. And because the community is so important and I'm pretty sure like a lot of communication, Since even on mobile where we have a strong like uh, social component, uh, the words can go out quickly and this is uh, not a good time. <laughs> when yeah, people yeah. Notice. yeah. <laughs> All right. So then let's get back a few years before you joined Blizzard. You were more on the BI and research side. Could you tell more what you were doing at Riot? What was your mission? Yeah, when I started as a researcher, I was working with the revenue strategy team to help them understand how players responded to different monetization products, proposed monetization products and changes and, and those kinds of things. I would say like in addition to understanding how players would respond to different monetization systems and content, there was kind of an expansion into understanding what drives different KPIs. So what drives engagement, what drives revival, what drives monetization. And that quest became, you know, ever more granular over time. Mm -hmm. 
But it does actually show how important, as you mentioned, and at Riot Games, understanding the players, like hiring someone, focusing solely on how the player responds to different monetization systems. I assume here that also you had qualitative and quantitative insights, like going through interview and analyzing data as well? Yeah, absolutely. My specialization was really in uh, quantitative methodologies, but Riot and Blizzard are both pretty obsessed with making sure that players are having a good time, that they're doing the right thing by players. And so Riot has an enormous insights org that tells them all kinds of things about how players are responding and feeling about different things. I'm curious also about your original background. So you say like coming more from research, how did you get then into games or at Riot Games? You know, what's funny. I quit playing games in college because I had to focus on, <laughs> on school and do well in school. I got an undergraduate psych degree at UCLA and my focus was on cognitive psychology and research methods and things like that. And My plan had initially been to go on to get my PhD and work in the area of learning and memory, like I mentioned, but it was very difficult financially because I didn't have a lot of parental support. Basically, I like paid my own way through college. And so when I got a job offer right out of school, I was like kind of too poor to refuse. (laughs) I went to a market research firm and there was nothing on my LinkedIn at the time about playing games or anything because I had quit a couple years prior in college to focus on school. But the recruiters at Riot were kind of like routinely raiding all of the local market research houses for looking for research talent. And that's kind of how I got my first in at the gaming industry is just got raided. <laughs> nice. Uh, so back to the game. So you try to quit games, but games get back to you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And at first it was a little bit like an alcoholic working in a brewery or something, <laughs> but you know, it's turned out well. Yeah. And it must be amazing as well. Like your first uh, position in a games company is like with Riot Games is like big company, like also iconic franchise with League of Legends. So it's great. Pure luck. I mean, I would say there's a lot of luck involved in how I got here. (laughs) And so in your journey at Riot Games, so you started from the more research door, but I understand that things have evolved for you and then it turned more into like BI, leader of BI. Could you walk us through how that happened to you? Yeah, the revenue strategy group at Riot was doing some BI work. And I had a pretty awesome mentor who supported me, helped me learn, taught me a lot about how businesses function and their needs and business intelligence. And he and I together made a pitch to make this more like formal BI team, BI function on League of Legends, and that I would lead it. And the rest is kind of uh, history from there. I think it's amazing you mentioned as well how sometimes opportunities happen for them. And it was thanks to a very caring mentor who could see opportunity and the skills and the potential. I can hear as well for yourself and, you know, elevating you to the position and to then create the role and so on. So it's a great story and example to see. Yeah, I'm so grateful for that, actually, you know, that opportunity. Having talent, being hardworking is only half of the equation. The other half is that folks in power have to recognize you and champion you and give you the opportunity to prove yourself. And that is very much what I was lucky to have happen to me. 
you are now like director of product. So it's also an evolution forever. Like if we think, you know, like a past, uh, like the whole journey from research, psychological study, and then BI, so more numbers and product management. How did that happen as well for you, this transition? I mean, a lot of it was leading BI on a huge game like League of Legends for years gave me so much experience in understanding how different things move our KPIs, understanding what actually impacts engagement and moves the needle, what actually adds incremental players that stick to your game, what sort of things chunk your engagement and actually pose real threats. It was really that continuous day in and day out of looking at graphs, trying to understand what's moving the needle on these different KPIs that laid the foundation for me to be successful in product management. You have to look not only at what the game team is doing and delivering to players, but what is the market doing? What are your competitors doing? I remember when Fortnite launched, there was a big impact to our KPIs, just like many competitive esports games were very impacted by a game like Fortnite. And that was really a huge lesson in understanding the order of magnitude that different things could have on your KPIs in that competitors is the top order of magnitude. Yeah, yeah, totally. I guess as well, it affects then a bit like the roadmap and you know, what what kind of ideas you can come up with because it's always contextual, like it's uh, versus the market. That's true. And so what were the biggest misconceptions you had, for example, in a game like League of Legends and then thanks to data and BI, that's just like, wow, I had no idea and, you know, like revealing some truth. I, I can tell you some of the most shocking realizations that I had. So I think with older live service games, there was kind of a model of how the games would evolve over time that was very much based on the product maturity curve, that there's a growth period, there's a golden age where the product is stable and mature, and then there's an inevitable decline. One of the most shocking things that I experienced on League was seeing that model of how games would evolve over time just break with the release of new companion endgame experiences like TFT and with external factors like COVID and just seeing how the shape that we had all come to expect was not what came to pass. I think another really shocking realization that I had was on a game like League of Legends with such a gargantuan scale, it's easy to lose perspective on the size of things, like in the rest of the gaming industry. And so League of Legends has a game mode called ARAM that in and of itself is bigger than most AAA games in terms of its engagement. And I only kind of fully appreciated that scale later when I like left the world of Riot, where you have these gargantuan player numbers. <laughs> Wow. I think also as we manipulate and play with numbers, they look a bit abstract. And I think we tend to forget the magnitude of what it means when we have millions of players. Right, so, right. Okay. So I don't know this reality, of course, in AAA games company, but I see you as well director of product or women in executive roles. First, an industry in games there are not so many female executives, so it's a fact. But I would say here, leading products that by nature are very directed to hardcore gamers. And I would assume as well, in majority, maybe this has changed. So maybe you will tell me if it has changed. So how has it been for you in your whole experience working on games like League of Legends or Diablo 
as a woman in executive roles? Well, you know, the challenges of both companies have been very public. And certainly at both companies, I'm typically one of the only women in the room. And so it can be isolating. The whole industry has this notable asymmetry and lack of diversity, especially as you go up. And that has been very challenging to me at times. And I've definitely had moments where I broke down and honestly like cried because of the way that people treated me or the things that were said to me. And the way that I've dealt with it is to kind of try to accept humans for what they are while trying to like push for things to be better. The more you approach these topics with judgment in your heart and anger or those kinds of emotions, it isn't the most productive way to engage. Most people, in my opinion, actually have really good intentions and want to do the right thing and just need help understanding how to do that. There have been moments, speaking about Riot specifically, where I just felt so demoralized by the perspective of people that I cared about very deeply who I know they're good people I know they have good intentions but they're just so off base on some of these topics it's really important to maintain that open mind and that default to trusting that people do have good intentions and will do the right thing if they get a little bit of help and guidance There's a lot of kindness and empathy in what you're uh, sharing. And thanks for sharing openly your thoughts and experience. I can also relate to that as well in my own experience, having been quite often both a single woman in the room. But it gets better over time as I think there's more and more awareness about it. But something I think really important that you mentioned is assuming first the best, right? So uh, starting with empathy, where creating first awareness And then letting the opportunity also for the group, for the room to adapt the behavior by being aware. And I was at a recent event where I was also in a leadership offsite, was the only woman, without mentioning about it. And then privately, some members of the group asked me, how was the experience for you? Did we behave well? Like there was really a worry, <laughs> like, did you feel comfortable? Like, I felt great. So I didn't feel like I was the only woman. It's a conversation. And then when you do care and you are, have the same objectives, there could be changes. So it's also another positive message as well, where it's not great all the time and it is challenging, but we can help each other make it better. Yeah, I agree with that. I have a very optimistic perspective on how the games industry will, and the entertainment industry and the tech industry will evolve. Yeah, yeah. Can, yeah. yeah, it's a topic and not just for your company, for my company, it's just tech and game. It's very, very much, but I think it's also uh, very helpful that people like you can speak openly about it and then also give some thoughts, avenues of how to handle it because those moments are sometimes difficult and feel lonely. Yeah, absolutely. For the last part, I'd like to ask some question of reflection of your own journey, you know, in your career. So what was a significant event in your life that you can think of that really shaped the way you are today? You know, it's funny, probably one of the most significant events that shaped me as a person and my perspective on life and myself and other people is that I was kind of sent away as a teenager to one of those schools for girls who misbehave in like Utah. <laughs> um, and I spent the second two years of high school at this like school for reforming girls. And that whole experience was extremely powerful in a bunch of ways. But 
One of them is that when you're a teenager and your brain is kind of going through that last neural pruning that's going to cement your personality, I was going through hours and hours a day of therapy and group therapy and mind games with psychiatrists and psychologists. And I think that it set me up to reflect a lot on my motivations and try to have some self-awareness. So that's on a personal level, that was very formative for me. On a professional level, I think the opportunity to come to Riot was one of the most profound things that changed the entire course of my life and my future. You know, I was very much headed in a pretty different direction before that happened. That's awesome. Thanks a lot for sharing. I really like to hear as well from my guests about this question. It's so many different answers and very personal, like to really shape in those events. So thanks for sharing. And a question I'd like to ask as well, because especially where you are right now, I mean, like it's amazing what you're doing with Diablo, such a big franchise and a lot of challenges coming. What is success to you? Oh God, I ask myself this question all the time. <laughs> I have a lot of ambition. I'm like a, just a very ambitious person and I'm always pushing, pushing, pushing for the next thing. And so I'm not entirely sure what the answer to this question is, but What I can say is, I think that the thing that I am ultimately seeking is time with my family, like time mm -hmm. with the people that I love, like my husband and my babies. And if I could have more time with them, that would really be the hallmark of success. But at the same time, you know, like I want to be able to make money and give my girls the best things in life and help out other members of my family. And so it's not as simple as just leave the workforce and be a housewife, although I have definitely dreamed about that many times. <laughs> There's some balance there and figuring out how to be a provider, but also still have time to enjoy the life that you've provided for your children. Mm -hmm. What would you say are the most important skills that took you where you are today in your evolution and career? The ability to learn. So learning necessarily involves uh, failure and it involves resilience and getting back up and trying again and keeping going in the face of setbacks. I would not be here today if I didn't have the iron will to keep going, <laughs> even when things were hard or when things didn't go the way that I wanted them to. That is the number one thing. I can recognize that in you and what you have shared today. Games is tough. And then also, yeah, all the product management challenges, it is tough. So yeah. <laughs> We are reaching also the end. And at the end, I like to ask my three rapid fire questions. So you don't know about them. And the idea is to answer as fast as possible. Are you ready for this? Oh my gosh, I'll try. So what is the first thing you think of when you wake up? My baby. Hmm. <laughs> what is the last thing you think of when you go to bed? Climate change, war, all the honestly terrifying changes that are uh, manifesting in the world right now, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it is hard to not think about it. And last question is, when I tell you dream vision, what comes to your mind? I see myself <laughs> um, jarring pickles from my garden that I grew myself. I love the idea of urban homesteading. 
there's actually this YouTube influencer called Kevin Espiritu, who I, I just, I love watching his channel. And he's basically living my dream life where he gets to live in an urban homestead in San Diego and farm and cook the things he's farming. I'm actually like just a very simple person like that. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, it is a dream, but I have heard also from other people. And so... It's possible, you know, maybe. We'll see. In few no, years, I know. mean, not, probably not in the cards for me, but that's why I love the game Stardew Valley and all of oh, those yeah. like, survival farming games. They give me a little taste of the dream. <laughs> yeah. If you cannot have it in real life, you play it. You play fantasy. That's an, that's another right. alternative. Well, that was it. Kegan, thanks so much. I had a lot of fun chatting with you and learning more about the, you know, AAA world. Some takeaways for me for mobile. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, rate and review the podcast. Spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership how to hire a team with a vision, or how to lead and build a team for the long-term game. Until the next time, 